We are looking at verses 7 through 10. It's a new section that I'm moving into. So as always, I kind of give you an overview of where we're going and what we're doing and why. So if you would please follow in the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 through 10. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against truth, but only for truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present... I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. Father, help us to hear the Apostle Paul, the words anointed by your Spirit, given by the Spirit of wisdom and comfort and counsel. And Father, to a church that was struggling, a church that was rebelling against He who purchased her. Father, help us in this day and this age to understand the significance of this. Father, help us, as Paul says, be made complete. In Christ's name, amen. We're coming to the end of this book, this letter, epistle. And we're dealing with a situation where the Apostle Paul, this would be the fourth letter that was written between him and the church in Corinth. We have one that we don't have. Then we have what is known as Second Corinthians. There was a third letter called the Severe Letter. We don't have that. And then we have Second Corinthians. All right, so we can see how it lays out. This church had really hurt the Apostle Paul in a horrific way. He had spent about 18 months with them, laboring from day to day, house to house, strengthening them in the Lord. It was an awful city, a terrible city. And yet God, uh, in his sovereignty, put this church right in the middle of Corinth. And in doing so, what was happening was they were impacting their community, but they were managing to when people would come to salvation, they would come into the church and they would bring their stuff with them. And it would lay there underneath the service because they wanted to hear what the things of God, they wanted to hear about salvation, they wanted to hear about their Redeemer, they wanted all of this stuff, but they were skeptical of giving up their stuff, their issues, their society. And what was happening is, if you go back to 1 Corinthians, you'll find out there were some awful things going on in the church. And some of them were going on in the name of Christ. And it was a lie. What happens when you have what I I call it a fleshly church? What happens when that is happening, that, that scenario? A false teacher can come in with very good words and sway the flesh. We've all known people that if you watch them, 
if, if you, it's, it's like self-centeredness. Okay, I don't have to teach on that. Did you know that? We're all good at it. And if I've got somebody who can say, well, you, it's about you, your needs. Really? Is that what it's about? No, it's not. You know, I, I went through and I showed you a contrast in the last two messages between what people say, this is salvation, and then the Apostle Paul says, examine yourself and see if you're true. And I showed you the stark contrast by what is promoted today in the body of Christ as true faith isn't. Okay? But I share this with you because when I go through this letter, I think, okay, chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, there was reconciliation. There was enough people in the church that said, what we're doing to the Apostle Paul is wrong. And Paul's already told him, he says, I'm wishing to come back for the third time. Now, I know that he came back for the third time. And the third trip back, he wrote the letter that you call and I call Romans. Because he was wanting to go to Rome, but he had to take the offering that the Corinthians has taken up down to Jerusalem. All right, so he had that all worked out. And he did go back and he was accepted and received because I don't have any other record otherwise. All right. But it's amazing if you think about it. Think about our society right now. All you have to do is say something. It don't have to be true. Just throw it out there. Just throw it out there. Somebody said a lie will be all the way around the world. Before truth gets his shoes on. If you look around at our society today, do you not agree? Just make an accusation. I don't have to found it. I don't have to base it on anything. So that's the setting that we're looking at. We're looking at what I call the process of sanctification. And we are in step five. It starts over in chapter 12, verse 20, and runs through chapter 13, verse 10. Okay? But let me give you some background. Let me just think about some things. The New Testament is full of metaphors. You know what a metaphor is? It's a picture. Jesus Christ was called the door. Was Jesus a door? Okay, Jesus Christ is called the shepherd. Was he ever a shepherd? Okay, he gives the parable of the four soils and the seeds that are laid on the soil. He uses a metaphor. It's a it's a, a an illustration of something that is very common to men. The New Testament is full of this. One of the things that is amazing to me. People have asked me. What do you look for if you are going to find an elder, a man who will lead, a man who will have responsibility over the body? And people have asked me this. I also find out that there are many metaphors for the duties and responsibilities of a pastor elder. Metaphors. Pictures. Illustrations. Okay? 
So, people ask me, what am I looking for? Do they have to be doctrinally sound? Well, that's probably a good start. But I know some false teachers that are doctrinally sound. But let me give you what the Bible says in metaphors. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 and 24 says that a pastor elder is a leader. Okay. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Philippians 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, and Titus 1, 7, they are overseers. In Acts 20, 28, and 1 Peter 5, 2, they are shepherds. In Acts 13, 1, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, in Ephesians 4, 11, they are teachers. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 says they are warners. They warn the people. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, that's chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians 1, 7. 1 Timothy 4, 6. They are servants. Titus 1, 7. Says they are stewards. 2 Corinthians 1, 4. Says that they are comforters. Philippians 3, 17. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3 says that they are examples. Okay? Those are all metaphors, illustration, pictures of what a pastor, elder should be. But there is one picture, one image that kind of pulls all of these together that I just gave you. All of these functions, these actions come together. And you know what it is? It's fascinating. Parents. Parents. Now, I don't want nobody running around here calling me dad, all right? <laughs> I'm just giving you a heads up because I, I, may, I may show you a wrong example. <laughs> Think about it for a second, though. Parents lead. Parents oversee. Parents shepherd. I had this discussion this week with a family on shepherding the hearts of their children. Parents teach. Parents warn. They don't ever listen, but they do warn. Parents serve. Parents have stewardship over those children. You know what? Parents even comfort the children. And you know what? Parents are an example to the children. 
So pastors are like parents. Kind of loses its glory, doesn't it? They are parents to the spiritual family. They are parents to the church. That's why you don't lay hands on a young believer because you need a grown-up to be a parent. Does that make sense? 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 15 talks of the spiritual family. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14 says the same thing. It's an awesome responsibility. If you have kids, you understand this. You understand the responsibility of having children. And you know what? Your children, you can be the best leader, the best overseer, the best shepherd, the best teacher, the best warner, the best servant, the best steward, the best comforter, and the best example. And that doesn't give you any guarantee on your kids. You know what they call that? Church. It's the same way. It's the same way. You can see this parental metaphor for spiritual leadership in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to spend a little time in there. People have asked me, you know, I've read this book on spiritual leadership. I've read this book on spiritual leadership. I've done this thing on spiritual leadership. I've done this thing on spiritual leadership. And you know where this is the text that I look for for a spiritual leader. And you know what? It's not in the pastoral epistles. But do you realize that there's no such thing as the pastoral epistles? Nowhere in the Bible does it say this is the pastoral epistle. Pastoral letter. This is what I look for when I think about someone who's going to be in spiritual leadership. And beginning in verse 7. Chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what I look for a man who wants to be an elder. That's a high standard, people. That's a very high standard. It is a burden. He starts it off here and he says, As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own child. You ever thought about that? Is there another picture anywhere, a word picture that you could use that shows any greater love than a nursing mother? 
And Paul says, we were as gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children. You ever thought about that? That's impressive. Do you understand how gentle that is? I've never been a nursing mother. And everybody says, amen. Okay. But when I think about that picture, I think about how intense is the gentleness of that mother to that child. Why? Having a fond affection, Paul says. A fond affection. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This is a pastor talking to a church. He said, I was as gentle. We were as gentle as a nursing mother because of this fond affection. That fond affection, we were well pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but our lives. See, an, an elder, a pastor, is sacrificial. He don't get time. He's not allowed to have time. Why? Because it's for everybody else. It's for everybody else. You know, I've got a day planner. I get one every year. I don't know why. I've never written in a day planner. It's a waste of ink. I've tried to explain, don't give me one of these. Why? Because six months in, I'm going to be so frustrated because I haven't got the stuff in January done. I think that's why God said I should be a pastor. Because I'm not a planner. I'm flexible. Whatever, sure. You know, I look at what I plan to do on Monday... Three weeks ago, for no apparent reason. Why? Because there's a fond affection to the people of God. And you have to use gentleness. There is a sacrifice of your life to the people. And you know what? Can anybody tell me when it's supposed to stop? Just a question. When does it stop? When do you stop sacrificing for the people? For the children of God. But there's also something else here. You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day as not to be a burden to anyone. We proclaim to you our gospel. I got I was talking to some pastors. They're new in town. And it's astonishing to me. They all get two months sabbaticals a year. I want to renegotiate my contract. I know Stephanie says, you ain't got no contract, dude. <laughs> they, they hung you out to dry. Okay. But I'm sitting there going, yeah. And they said, well, yeah, I'm going to take a month. I said, what are you doing on a sabbatical? And he says, well, I just don't do anything. 
Can I be your associate pastor? <laughs> I'll take a month. That's crazy stuff. I never heard of such a thing. But then I go uh, and I look. They've got some websites that you can see what churches are looking for and what pastors are looking for. What a racket. What a racket. Laboring night and day so as not to be a burden. You witness, verse 10, witnesses, and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father. See, it used to be, I don't know when it changed, but it used to be, where did discipline come from? Dad. Because I'll never forget, growing up, my dad was hardcore Marine. And we would do something boneheaded. And the words ring in my ears. Wait till your father gets home. Okay? He whipped us with a belt one time. But he used one of those thick canvas belts that the Marines used to carry canteens and magazines on. And he only had to do it once. It left an indelible impression on me and my brother. Like, hmm, make a note. That's not pleasant. But when you think about the father, I don't know what's happened now. I, I don't, I really don't. But he says, we were there exhorting. The word exhorting means I'm going to come alongside you because of that relationship that I have of being gentle and a fondness. So I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to put my arm around your shoulder and I'm going to look at you and I don't have to tell you that I love you because you've already experienced it. And I'm going to put my arm around you and I'm going to say, you keep going down this road. And you do not know the briar patch you're about to end up in. But I want you to know, because of my fondness for you, when you hit that briar patch, I'll be there to help pull you out. Okay? It's like when you tell your kids, don't put your hands on top of the stove. Why? It's hot. And then they have to go learn what hot is. Okay, and you can look at him and you smile. I told you that that was hot. And I think about my kids and the things that I have told them for no apparent reason. But then I can look at the congregation of Christ and think about the things that I've told them for no apparent reason. But because of the fondness and the gentleness of a mother caring tenderly for her own kids, that fond affection you're always there to help them out. The Father exhorts. But we encourage too. We encourage. Keep reading. You know, I was thinking this morning. 
was talking to a friend of mine, I don't know, sometime this week. It's been kind of a crazy week. And he says, I've set myself up for 2016. He says, I plan to read my Bible one hour a day, seven days a week for the year. That's fascinating. I wonder right now in this room, how many people would take one hour a day? I'm not talking about a devotional. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about the Word of God taking one hour to read it every day. And I had somebody say, well, where should I read? Oh, I don't think it really matters. How many of us would actually sacrifice one hour to read the Word of God? But see, that's what a father does. The father says, I want to encourage you to read this. Why? Because it changed my life. I know pastors right now who've never read the entire Bible. All 66 books. I remember when I read it. I read it through, it took me about a month and a half to read the whole Bible. And I said, well, you, what, what do you mean? I said, well, I was going to try to find a contradiction in it. And I've been reading my Bible ever since. That's 30 some odd years ago. How many of us are willing to say, I will take one hour out of my life? Uh, you don't understand how hectic my life is. Really? You should have been with me this week. Because I would like to quit getting paid salary. I want miles. Okay, how many of us would take an hour a day and read our Bibles? Pick a spot. I know, I will read <laughs> the maps. So, And if you're a man, you can't do that because men don't ask for directions. That's to encourage. Why? Because I'm imploring each of you as a father would his own children. I'm imploring you. You know what that is? I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Why? I want to be tenderly caring for you. I have a fond affection for you. I have a labor that is sacrificial for you. I exhort you. I encourage you. And I implore you. Why? Because the result is that you will walk in a manner worthy of God who calls them into his own kingdom. That's the results. That's the results. That's the balance. That's the balance. Where do you get the balance at? Walking worthy. So when I think about the Apostle Paul... I think of the ultimate pastor. But I see in the Apostle Paul a very tender care. But I also see a very strong instruction. And let me tell you something. When I think about having an elder to serve along with me, that is the marks of a faithful pastor. Listen, brothers and sisters, there's no difference between an elder and a pastor. Please understand that. And if the man can't walk that way, then don't step into it. You don't put a body in something because you need a, a body. 
if they can't have a fond affection for the people and be loving care that everybody sees because they have strong instruction, don't do it. True man of God is not concerned about building up his reputation. True man of God is not growing the size of the congregation or any selfish pursuits. As was the Apostle Paul. His consuming passion of a true man of God is nurturing spiritual children to maturity. That's his passion. Paul expressed this in an interesting letter. There's two letters that are are, are really fascinating to me. One is Romans. I love Romans. But I also love Galatians because Galatians is Romans when Paul's mad. Okay, Uh, when people are mad about something, they're very short and very concise. Okay, Romans, he was sitting in Corinth, the Corinthian church had changed. And so he wrote Romans and he had this long, elongated thing. Galatians does the same thing, except he does it like really fast. Okay, and he's mad at him. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Once you've begun in the spirit, you're now perfecting in the flesh. Okay, those, those are not kind words. Okay, so he's mad at him. But in chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 19, he says this, My children, with whom I'm again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Okay, now understand, the Galatian, it's, 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 it's kind of like a county of, of northern uh, Turkey. Okay, it's where Aleppo, so all the fighting is going on. That's the Galatia region. All right, he's saying, you guys are knuckleheads. But I labor to bring you back. I labor to bring you back. Why, you are my children. Paul, as he is closing this letter to the Corinthians, to a people who really, really hurt him. Now understand, he went back to Corinth on a surprise visit, and people stood up and falsely accused him. He was not an apostle. He was not sin of God. He's doing it for fame and fortune. He's doing it for financial ability. And you know what broke his heart? Nobody defended him. And yet he was the one that God sent to Corinth to plant the church, to grow the church. These people hurt him. And so what he's doing at the conclusion of 2 Corinthians is he's summarizing the building blocks needed For spiritual growth. Okay. If a believer. Now this is the hard part. Especially in this day and age. I've heard all the conversations. I can't know a man's heart. Yeah you can. (laughs) It's, It's simple. You will know them by their. Fruit. Yeah I can tell how people act. What their priority is. 
I mean, you know, they, all the politics and, well, I don't think he's saved. It's funny how spiritual everybody is when they're running for office. And then they get into office and all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. But I find it fascinating that the Bible says, no, examine yourself, test them. See what it looks like. I mean, if it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, but it smells like a chicken. You may want to question it. Maybe it's just a goofy chicken or a mixed up duck. Right? And this this book is not that complicated. If I can understand it, anybody can. He is summarizing how to build this. How the process of sanctification works. You were saved for one reason. Romans 8. To be conformed into the image of Christ. That's the only reason. If a believer is to be conformed into the image of Christ, then guess what? The believers must deal with their sin. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us your sin. Alright, here's the deal about that. The word confess says, I agree that God calls this sin and it's sin. See, we like to debate God. Well, is that really a sin or is it just sort of an error? We have all kinds of excuses with God right now. Well, it's not really that big a sin. Oh, now, wait a minute. But we all do that. Why? Well, you know, well, it gives the image of sin. But it wasn't sin, but it gives the image of sin. Is that sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to cause a saint to stumble. So Paul discusses these issues, and that's what we've started dealing with in chapter 12, verse 20. Through chapter 10 of verse 13, Paul discusses this issue and he began that because I'm trying to give you guys this big package that I've been going over for a couple of months. All right. Through this text. And so I'm going to put it in a package for you right now. All right. So hold on. Okay, everything I've taught you over the last couple of months, I'm just about to wrap up in a bow. Except for this final section. One, first thing that we had to deal with was what? 20 and 21, chapter 12, repentance. Repentance. His concern for the Corinthians was to turn from their sin and pursue godliness. Repentance. A believer's, a, a believer who fails to repent will need the church's encouragement to repent. Okay? See, the church ain't for a bunch of healthy people. The church is for a bunch of sick people. You need to change. And sometimes the church says, guess what? You haven't changed, so it's time for discipline. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Discipline. Call you out. 
I've done that. I've not had a lot of success with it. I'll be honest with you. A few times, but more no than success. Most people, if you call them on something, you'll never see them again. Poof. And you're like, wow, that was kind of... I remember a guy that we set outside of the church. Um, I think it's the only one we had public discipline on. And he went to West Virginia. And I sent a letter to the pastor that he was attending in West Virginia and said that we had set him outside of the church. Now, <laughs> your problem. Okay. I don't know whatever happened, but I did my part. I had a lady one time who put a restraining order on me. But I, I, I have to do my part. Okay. I, he doesn't say, do this, and this is what will happen. He just says, do it. Just do it. So, sometimes the church encouraged people to repentance through discipline. Just as children cannot develop maturity apart from what? Changing their direction, repentance. And sometimes you need to motivate them to change their direction. Discipline. And that falls into the third step, which was submission to parental authority. Listen, brothers and sisters, I have absolutely no authority except this book. That's all I got. I'm going to tell you what this book says. And if you don't do it, that's between you and my boss. I can't make you. If it's bad enough, I'll set you outside. But you know what? We got 54 churches in Castle Rock. You can go to a different church every week and nobody will ever know. Okay. The parental authority and discipline, so believers must submit to those who are in authority of the church. Chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. And, probably one of the greatest struggles that exist in the body of Christ today. Are you authentic? Listen, if you don't want to submit to authority and you're not worried about discipline and you're not worried about repentance, you know what? Are you real? Are you a genuine child of God? Authentic children have to be real. Have you guys ever met people who have been in church longer than you are old? but have never matured? Are they real? I mean, if there's no maturing going on, isn't there a problem? I mean, you were saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. If you're not growing, growing up in Christ, guess what? You might want to go back to step one. Are you His? 
Have you examined yourself to see if you are of the faith? Have you looked? Have you tested it? Has your faith been tested? And when it comes to that test, how do you do? Listen, I know a whole bunch of people who know the Bible better than I'll ever know it. And I know emphatically they're not saved. Well, how can you know that? I look at their life. They don't believe what their head has read. You have to take a stand. And you will either stand on the sand and shifting sand, or you will stand on the rock. You will either stand on the lie, or you'll stand on truth. They must examine themselves to see if they are truly saved. That was 13, 5, and 6. See how the package comes together? This section that we are in, Paul is concluding the main part of his letter. He makes that statement. Look at verse 10. For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up, not tearing down. What's he trying to do? He's trying to conform him into the image of Christ. He's trying to be a good parent. He's telling them, you must repent. You must understand the church must discipline you if you refuse to repent. You must submit to the authority God has placed over you. You must also understand, are you real? Are you real? And he does it by two elements, two essential elements. Step five of the process of sanctification Submission and integrity. Submission and integrity. And I will step into this next week. Okay? See the package? You can't have submission and integrity if you don't have the others. That's what the Apostle Paul is sharing with the church in Corinth. Understand, who is he writing to? It's church. Church that has fallen off the deep end. But some had come back. But the false teachers are still staying there. And he's saying, listen, you need to be conformed. This is how you do it. Five steps. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the simplicity of his words. Lord, I ask you that each of us would understand the urgency for repentance the Father, the mandate for discipline. Father, that we would also understand what does it mean to have divine authority over us? Father, are we real? Have we tested ourselves? Please, Lord, let none of these people fail the test. But Father, I also pray that we understand in all of this is the submission and integrity necessary for us each to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, that glory is so muddled today, the lost can't see it. So, Father, I ask you, help us. Help us to reflect He who redeemed us so that the lost will see the glory of the risen Lord. Thank you, my King.
Thank You, my Lord. In Christ's name, Amen.